Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a great guest today. I have uh, Eugene V. Kunin. He's a senior investigator at the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Um, He's also working with the NIH. Uh, He's been involved in um, evaluating uh, essentially the genomics and genes of, of various creatures throughout time. Uh, he's uh, been working in the world of virology for quite a time, too. So uh, we're going to speak to him about his work. So, Eugene, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So I, I know that you've been interested in the um, in evolution itself uh, for quite a while. And uh, it sounds like you have some thoughts that go beyond you know, the traditional narrative. Um, if you would, just tell me about your, your interest in evolution. How did you first get interested in it? Well, uh, you know, quoting them tired but still completely valid uh, motto of Theodosius Dobzhansky, uh, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Hmm. Uh, so so I, I have been uh, interested in the evolution of life for almost as long as, uh, as I have been interested in biology itself, uh, which is indeed quite a long time, effectively half a century, if not a little longer. So once, once you get interested in biological diversity and hear about Darwin and uh, evolutionary biology, it becomes clear that what you want, what you really want to understand, and really actually the only way to understand biology is to understand evolution. And then on top of that, you know, when I was very young, um, still at school, um, I had the sheer good luck uh, to read the foundational. Uh, papers by Milt Zuckerhandel and Linus Pauling on molecular evolution and molecular clock. And that really captured my imagination almost 50 years ago and holds the grip over my imagination now because okay. uh, comparing genomes uh, and applying the appropriate statistical techniques, we can, if you will, see in front of us uh, um, uh, the course of the evolution of life, and uh, there are few more exciting spectacles. I have a quick question about you, um, for you about uh, molecular clocks. I've heard about them, and I've heard that they're used to estimate the, I guess, the, the rate of change of different organisms. You worked with them for quite a long time. Do you believe that they're accurate, and is the description I gave you right about molecular clocks? Oh, no, what you say, oh, there's so many things in, in, in science what you say is correct in the zero approximations. Uh, That is in principle, yes. The molecular clock uh, concept says uh, that each gene, as long as its function remains unchanged, evolves at its constant characteristic pace over eons of time. Constant, of course. Of course, no one, no reasonable person thinks that constant means literally. There is always some statistical variance, some, some dispersion of, of 
any, any, any value, any rate, any pace that we can measure. That's for sure. But what we also find is that uh, the molecular clock um, is, um, as evolutionary biologists tend to say, uh, over dispersed. Uh, that is, the variance is greater than you would predict uh, it was supposed to be uh, for purely um, random reasons, purely by chance. The variation is actually greater, indicating that there are all kinds of episodes in the evolution of uh, genes and genomes that result in changed uh, pressure of selection and accordingly changes, sometimes fairly dramatic, in the rates of evolution. It seems very difficult to rely on molecular clocks if they're, you know, if they're not accurate. Um, and then how do you look at them in light of, you know, do I, how do I consider a molecular clock if it's on a piece of DNA versus on, you know, the, the RNA of a virus, let's say, um, how do I look at it in terms of epigenetic change? It, it just seems like um, it's weird. It's, it's used to prove or try to prove certain phenomena, but it just seems so variable. I don't even know if it's a, is it a useful concept? It is a useful concept. It is a highly useful concept. It is, if you will, the now hypothesis of molecular evolution. The molecular clock concept that I just uh, stated, uh, uh, that each gene in an organism uh, evolves at its particular rate. It's important to realize uh, that this pertains to individual genes uh, whose rate of evolution differ by two or three orders of magnitude. In a, in a large genome like ours, finds. But each gene is supposed to evolve uh, under its constant characteristic pace. Uh, and uh, this is a very useful, useful concept. It is, as I say, the now hypothesis of molecular evolution. By studying deviations from that now hypothesis, uh, we can get ideas about what is going on, what kind of mm, functional changes occur, what kind of um, population ecological changes occur in the course of evolution and how they affect evolution of various genes. If we do not have, uh, had we not had uh, this central uh, now hypothesis, this sort of ideal of molecular clock, very few useful things could have been said uh, about evolution of genes and genomes. Fortunately, that is not the case. So if I have um, a gene that's, I don't know, a thousand base pairs long in me, and it's also in a cow, will that gene appear to change at the same rate? It's the same gene, but in two different creatures. Does it, does it correlate? It correlates very well. The same? No. This, this is a good question. No, not quite the same. There are differences in the rates of evolution, both across the set of genes, uh, mm, within a group of organisms and uh, mm, perhaps less dramatic but still significant differences between different groups of organisms. For instance, the say, if you look, say, at primates, at ourselves and apes and monkeys, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we look at rodents, for instance, or mice, um, rats, and hamsters, or their rate of evolution is uh, significantly higher perhaps two or three times higher on average than ours. Still, there is a strong, there is a very good correlation 
in the ranking of genes by the evolutionary rate. Those genes that are fast in us are fast in them also as a rule, as a strong rule, and vice versa. Okay, and then in terms of your research, um, what kind of uh, evaluations are you doing, you know, comparing the genomics of different creatures? It seems like that's a big part of your work, you know, perhaps uh, prokaryotes versus eukaryotes, etc. Like what yes. kind of comparisons are you doing? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, comparative genomics uh, is a big part of our work, comparing genomes of, of prokaryotes, bacteria and archaea, viruses, and to somewhat lesser extent eukaryotes, uh, and trying to uh, reconstruct uh, their uh, evolution and predict functions of individual genes and functional associations between uh, different genes. Uh, so in order to do that uh, in, in at the most basic level, uh, what we must do uh, is to uh, compare the sequences of genomes. How mo- we do that more precisely? Um, compare, compare the sequences and do uh, and generate what is known as alignment. Uh, that is, you basically uh, write the sequence uh, of the nucleotides in, in one genome underneath uh, the sequence of nucleotides in another genome and optimize that alignment, uh, maximize the similarity uh, because there are deletions and insertions and uh, if you do that naively, the genomes may not look very much alike, but if you optimize the similarity, you have significant alignment. How you do that more precisely depends on the evolutionary distance. If we are dealing with uh, closely related genomes, such as, for instance, genomes of different individuals in a, in a population, say human individual, or virus strains or something like that, uh, we um, compare nucleotide sequences directly. If we deal uh, with more distant evolutionary relationships, then uh, we compare protein sequences because uh, proteins show the high, a higher degree of evolutionary conservation than nucleotide sequences itself, or nucleotide sequences themselves. Um, uh, so the uh, specific methodology depends on the, on the data uh, that we are interested in, but the principles uh, remain the same always. Uh, we uh, compare the sequences, and when we compare multiple sequences, we can build uh, an evolutionary tree and make conclusions about the relationships uh, between uh, the, within the set of uh, compared genomes and genes and proteins, etc., etc. And we also can make, perhaps is more important for biology, uh, we can make functional predictions uh, based on the very fundamental principle of evolution, namely uh, uh, what is functionally important. Whatever parts of the genome that are functionally important are conserved in the course of evolution, whereas those that are less functionally important or whose importance um, lies in their fast change, those change much faster. So you have a specific example of a comparison you've done that really taught you something really interesting. Any favorite examples? There are a great many, uh, but perhaps it makes sense uh, now um, to speak briefly uh, about uh, comparison of the genomes of coronavirus. Does it not? Everyone. Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Everyone and their grandmother uh, are uh, (laughs) doing that uh, today pretty much. But of course, not everyone is... uh, equally qualified. 
So, so we have done we have done and continue doing some work in that direction. And just very briefly, for instance, we have compared uh, the genomes of a great variety of those coronaviruses and compared uh, and focused on the consistent differences between uh, those that cause severe disease uh, in humans and their closest relatives in animals, in bats in particular, and those that uh, cause uh, much milder disease. Has anyone yet studied, let's say, GISAID's material on uh, you know, the new coronavirus and looked at all the sequences and compared them and aligned them and then try to make a correlation between that and the... Uh, the action of, of SARS-CoV-2, whether it's going to be, you know, how it's going to make various people sick or not. Has that been done? Yes, yes, yes. This is, this is precisely what I'm talking about. We try to, uh, you know, that there are, as, as everyone pretty much knows these days, there have been three major outbreaks of coronavirus disease in humans, the original SARS, uh, then MERS, uh, and, and this SARS-2, the, the um, catastrophic pandemic this year, and the far less catastrophic previous ones, but with viruses that are even more virulent, even if less contagious. So we, we actually made these alignments, and as I, as I outlined uh, a few minutes ago, uh, and asked ourselves, what would be the consistent difference? Is there anything that is shared specifically by the highly virulent ones uh, to the exclusion of the less virulent ones? And lo and behold, yes. Uh, we have detected several features like that, in particular, uh, some specific uh, inserts in both the spike protein uh, and the nucleocapsid protein that seem to um, uh, increase the affinity uh, between the spike protein and receptor, uh, as well as facilitate the fusion of, of the spike protein with the um, uh, cell membrane and we believe, we predict, contribute to uh, the higher uh, pathogenicity, higher virulence of uh, these viruses. This is being, this is what we can do by computer, uh, and and this is what is currently being tested in, in the lab. Tying genomic variation back to uh, evolution, do you believe that genomic variation occurs in response to, you know, a creature's environment, or is it, uh, you know, is it random change? Like what drives change, you know, uh, what, what yeah. causes a clock for one gene to be, you know, 50 years versus a thousand for another? Like what drives this change in general? Uh, yeah, why, why is, uh, we don't really measure. Uh, mm, yeah, okay, what you probably mean is that the same amount of change uh, occurs in, in, in one gene in a thousand years and another gene in a, in a million years, which is true. So what causes this? Effectively, there are two sets of factors that, that affect And one is, uh, mm, let's say, intrinsic robustness of the encoded, of the molecule encoded in a given gene, uh, be it a protein or an RNA. If that protein or RNA tolerates many changes, this allows mm, for uh, mm, relatively fast uh, mm, evolution of the respective gene. If, on the other hand, or uh, mm, uh, the structure is, is rigid, the, the, the requirements are very precise for maintaining functionality, uh, then uh, we get a slow evolving gene. Uh, but also mm, uh, this, this um, acts uh, in conjunction uh, with the functional importance per se, the genes that are more important, quote unquote, for 
fitness of the respective organisms tend to evolve slowly. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So why do you think there is a evolution at all? Are you do you stick to natural selection and random mutation, or you know what's your thoughts instead? Uh, reasons why uh, evolution occurs at all are very fundamental. Uh, they're not even they have little to do uh, with natural selection per se. We will come to that in a second. But um, the reasons why uh, evolution, why change occurs, let's say, are very fundamental uh, and are rooted in, in in the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, which dictate uh, that no copying of uh, information without error is possible uh, without the corresponding expenditure of energy. Uh, that is for each each bit of increase uh, in the fidelity of uh, information copying, information replication, you have to pay with energy. Uh, and therefore, long genomes and long genes uh, is impossible to go many rounds of replication without accumulation of errors. Simply physically impossible. The organisms have evolved, the organisms fight uh, to keep uh, the replication fidelity under control. Uh, they have evolved a variety of repair control mechanisms. Now, regarding the mechanisms of uh, variation, the uh, mutation is fundamentally rent. At the same time, this does not, does not mean uh, that, um, let's say, in every place, in every position of the genome, the probability of, occur, uh, of a mutation occurring is the same, not really. It very much depends on the context, very much depends on the sequence of nucleotides. Um, um, so there are all kinds of modulating factors. But fundamentally, mutation is random. Now, fixation of mutation. That is, what is fixation? In mutation, uh, all evolution occurs in populations. Populations are typically large. Uh, a population can be stable in evolution only if its effective size, the size of individuals that give rise to progeny, is on the order of um, 10 to 100,000. So each mutation originally occurs in a single individual. And what happens next? And the mutation can be disappeared if uh, it has an adverse effect on the fitness of the organism. It can sort of linger in the population if it's neutral or has some very low fitness effect, or it can can get fixed in the population if it is beneficial. And that is natural selection, fixation of beneficial mutation. So it's in in that sense, not natural selection is a deterministic mechanism. It's not a random mechanism. It acts, it measures, so to speak, Uh, the fitness effect of mutations or any changes in the genome uh, and uh, accordingly either fixes them in the population or eliminates them or disregards them, allows them to work around. Who who or what is the agency behind natural selection in your observation? There is no agency per se. Natural selection is uh, quite correctly um, stated by, uh, even if almost self-evidently stated by Darwin, is simply survival of the fittest under limited resource. Uh, so uh, it has to be kept in mind, however, that natural selection is not the only mechanism of fixation of genomic changes. Mm, the other mechanism that is fundamentally different is called genetic drift. 
And that is happens uh, something that happens randomly, provided the given uh, genomic change does not have a significant deleterious effect. It may even have a slight deleterious effect and nevertheless be fixed in evolution for purely uh, random reasons. It's easy to understand uh, that the drift uh, road of evolution uh, becomes important in small populations simply because of the founder effect. If you know, if a population goes for such a narrow bottleneck that there is only one pair or um, of one organism or one pair of organisms in, in the um, sexually reproducing ones uh, that gives rise to all the progeny, then whatever they have will be fixed. Whatever Adam and Eve, um, so to speak, had in their genomes was fixed. So uh, this, 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 this is a very important um, addition or to our understanding of the mechanisms of evolution that was not really recognized by Darwin uh, and was added by the population geneticists of the 20th century, that much of the fixation of, of mutations um, in the course of evolution is not driven by selection, but actually is random, just as random as the actual occurrence of mutation. So... How do you think speciation happens, given that there appears to be not a lot of intermediate forms, you know, in the fossil record? Uh, yes. Well, the, the paucity of um, intermediate um, forms in the uh, fossil record um, is a, a combination of, of the incompleteness of that record. Of course, when quite often when people look more carefully, then more for thorough exploration is done, intermediate forms can be seen. Uh, but perhaps the most important, the more important factor is what is called, after um, Gould and Eldridge, uh, punctuated equilibrium, uh, whereby uh, new species occur pretty abruptly in the course of evolution. Much of uh, evolution, much of the evolutionary time is spent by evolving population in the state called stasis. Uh, mutations are accumulated, but there isn't that much change in, in fitness and not that much change in the uh, uh, phenotypic uh, properties of the organism. Uh, and then somewhat abruptly, on many occasions because of the change in the environment that results in the change in the, uh, in the shape of what we know as fitness landscapes, that is, fitness value of different mutations. Drastic changes uh, resulting in new species and even in new groups of organisms uh, occur uh, relatively quickly, uh, which complicates the detection of intermediate forms. So wouldn't that go contrary to the molecular, molecular clocks that comprise their genes if there's a sudden punctuated change, a massive yes, one? That is, that, uh, that is correct. But uh, again, there are, there are many issues involved. Uh, okay. all, um, it, dep it depends on what interval, uh, on what time interval you measure molecular clock and how you average. Yes, this perturbs molecular clock. Uh, the, the functionality changes perturb molecular clock. How dramatically? There is no single answer. It depends. Depends on different situations. And then again, uh, it may substantially perturb uh, molecular clock in, in a particular subset of genes, but not in others. Mm. Well, all right. So I guess I'll ask you an easier, a real easy question. How did, how did life begin? What do you think the first forms were? And I'm joking that it's easy, but 
I'd like your uh, opinion on how it began. Yeah, it's in a sense easy, and the easy cop-out answer is, is how do I know? But of course, you know, this, this, and it, it's, it's a valid disclaimer. No one really knows. We can say that we pretty much know the life form, or a lot about the life forms that existed on this planet, say, three billion years ago. It's quite a bit of time, but we can look that far back uh, and pretty much know uh, uh, what kind of organisms inhabited the planet. Bacteria and archaea, basically, and the virus. Uh, and we know a lot about how these But what was earlier than that is a very complicated question. Now, they are all convinced, based on the data of comparative genomics, mm. Darwin's prescient hypothesis on the existence of a last universal common ancestor of all life on Earth is valid. That there was what we often call the last universal common ancestor or the last universal cellular ancestor, not to change the acronym, or um, for short, fondly, uh, LUCA. The conservation of certain, about 100 of genes, uh, that include components of um, certain cellular subsystems, such as the translation and transcription system, convinces us that LUCA was the reality. So what, that, what was that LUCA like? We have very good reasons, actually, to believe that the population of the um, populations of that last universal common ancestor were much similar to the uh, current prokaryotes. It's a mix of features that we now consider to be uh, characteristic of archaea mm, uh, and bacteria. But then, this is a fairly advanced life form. It's a full, fully-fledged cell, which existed something like 3.5 billion years ago. So some habitats on, on Earth at that time were inhabited by populations of such primitive cells. But this is really a highly complex entity. And the evolution of this, of the cellular organization, is the biggest question of all in understanding how life appears. The rest, all the rest uh, that followed in the, in the next 3.5 billion years ago or so, was in a sense almost trivial compared to this first step. We understand a lot about cellular not everything, evidently, far from it, but a lot, about what preceded the emergence of the, or, or the first cells. We understand precious little. Based on logic and or on all we know uh, about biology, uh, there must have been some kind of protocells that um, originally didn't even have genomes, uh, that didn't have an information or uh, encoding of uh, information about the components of uh, those uh, protocells, just some kind of uh, compartmentalized uh, metabolic network that produced small but relatively uh, complex organic molecules, uh, uh, such as amino acids uh, uh, and nucleotides. That is the prerequisite for the origin of real cells. And then within this type of protocells, the genome, uh, genomes must have evolved. Uh, and we really understand very uh, little about uh, how they evolved. Uh, in all likelihood, the original genomes consisted of RNA, in that sense, similar to modern RNA viruses, 
which uh, combined uh, the functions that are now partitioned uh, between DNA and proteins, that is, they serve both, uh, these primordial RNA molecules serve both as information carriers uh, and as uh, functional operational entities, enzymes that catalyzed uh, various uh, reactions, also called ribozymes, RNA enzymes, uh, that uh, catalyzed various reaction in, reactions, including nucleotide uh, polymerization itself. There is a lot of, uh, beyond theorizing, there is a lot of uh, experimentation uh, now going on uh, along these lines, and there has been considerable success uh, in laboratories in terms of obtaining various ribozyme activities, of obtain, uh, developing RNA molecules that are capable of catalyzing various kinds of reactions. Still, the success is notwithstanding. Uh, no one um, at this time uh, has in their possession an RNA replicase, an RNA enzyme that is capable of replicating, of efficiently replicating itself or other RNA molecules. So um, uh, these early steps in life's evolution, they're highly challenging, uh, and we still do not truly understand what was happening. Yeah, how do you, as uh, so it's mentioned in your bio, how do you think viruses have uh, influenced our evolution and guided it? Viruses that, mm, beyond doubt, accompanied all billions of years of cellular evolution are an essential component of life. Uh, and they affect uh, the evolution of cellular life uh, and are, of course, affected by it uh, in turn in, in several fundamental ways. One of these is the um, host-parasite interaction, host-parasite co-evolution as such, or this, or what is often uh, called an arms race, which is an appropriate image because there is an arms race whereby uh, viruses evolve means to infect hosts and maximize their own propagation within hosts, whereas hosts uh, uh, evolve all kinds of all means of defense to, to keep viruses at bay. Uh, uh, but also arms race is a bit of one-sided uh, characterization because there are also a lot of cooperation uh, between uh, viruses and the cellular hosts. The viruses really, quote-unquote, big, thick quotes, don't want uh, to exterminate the host because if they exterminate the host, they disappear themselves. So they Hosts and cells mutually adopt uh, to maintain a stable host parasite ecosystem. Um, but there are also ways uh, in which uh, viruses, viruses affect uh, the evolution of the hosts uh, very directly, more directly, very directly, because viruses are sort of a laboratory or in nature for gene evolution. A lot of uh, genetic innovation uh, happens during virus evolution, and the hosts take advantage of that. Uh, they uh, borrow virus genes and use them for their own purpose. Mm. Yeah, I've seen bacteria and other types of cells use viral genes for their own purpose and sometimes do similar things that viruses do. You know, bacteria that have literally spike proteins in their membranes and use them to puncture, you know, other bacteria. So I've seen them, uh, this code borrowed. And then, of course, you know, viruses have endogenized inside of various cells as well. Absolutely, virus. Uh, for that matter, one uh, it's it's interesting to contemplate certain numbers. Mm, uh, for instance, 
uh, more than half of the nuclear of the DNA of the nucleotides in our genomes is of virus origin, primarily of retrovirus. Uh, oh, is it half? I, I thought it was like eight or nine percent was direct viral DNA, but you're saying it's more. How much you are saying? I thought it was like eight to ten percent of our DNA. I don't know where I don't, I don't know where these numbers come from. These numbers are not enough. We can even directly uh, detect much more. Uh, and indirectly, see, these, many of these sequences are sort of fossilized, and um, uh, the, the trace of viral origin have become difficult to detect. The estimates are that at least half of our genome comes um, um, originally from viruses. Um, much of that is junk, but with that amount of DNA, very clearly it cannot be all junk. Uh, so these sequences are used for various purposes. They're quite often used to regulate uh, the activity of the host genes. Mm, less often, but on many occasions, um, virus genes are actually borrowed to perform particular functions. For instance, just to give you a sort of um, somewhat striking example, uh, the um, receptors of, for the embryo on the on the um, uh, mammalian placenta um, are uh, proteins derived from retrovirus. So, uh, as it stands, our life cycle intimately depends on the um, contribution of, from retroviruses. And this is just one example. There are quite a few. Um, so, viruses contribute directly uh, to the uh, evolution of the host. At a very different level, but no less important, viruses make a huge biogeochemical contribution. Um, uh, that is saying the ocean. Uh, um, uh, viruses are responsible for massive killing of, of uh, bacteria or, or protozoan um, um, uh, cells and hence in deposition of carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and so on and so forth. So they make a major uh, contribution to the um, flows of, the, of all of these elements in the biosphere. Good question. Do you think that viruses are alive, or once they enter into a cell, are they alive at any point? Yeah, you see, this question is always asked in and by itself. It's, 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 it's not a scientific question, it's a philosophical question. And philosophical questions allow all kinds of answers or no answers. They just are more useful as questions, or as, as triggers for, for thinking. Um, so, the Clearly, uh, an argument, if one wants to debate it, uh, clearly there are arguments for suggesting that viruses are not really alive before they enter a cell and begin their reproduction. Uh, for the, um, and what is alive then is not really virus per se, uh, but the complexes consisting of the host cell and virus. A virus cell is some people. Uh, that's one type of argument. Viruses don't make, the, don't make their own energy supplies don't convert energy. As a rule, do not produce their own building blocks for their genomes and shells. So in that sense, they are not life forms. On the other hand, uh, viruses have the clearly maintain uh, the evolutionary individuality over um, millions of years. Um, and in that sense, they have attributes of life form. So there are different ways to answer that question, and I don't think there can be one unequivocal answer. Um, what is important um, is that if we view life as a system, 
as a system of interacting entities um, in, in space and in time, as we should, then uh, viruses are uh, an intrinsic essential component. I know that when viruses uh, infect a creature, there'll be what's called quasi-species, I guess different you know, types or subtypes of viruses. Do you, you think that um, I don't know, quasi-species act in concert and that they're actually goal-driven and in terms of an infection? Do you think that's a way that the virus itself... Uh, yeah, that, is able that, to yeah that, that is an interesting question, uh, namely, a bit of a perspective anymore. Viruses evolve very quickly. Uh, and so uh, a population of virus, any population is heterogeneous of so any, anything. Uh, but uh, uh, virus population uh, is particularly, uh, has a particularly high standing variation. So the question is, is this important for virus reproduction? Um, would it be even better for virus fitness if, if somehow there was a single dominant type? I would say uh, that the jury is still out on this question. Uh, there are experiments that suggest that the variation per se, what you call the quasi-species structure, um, uh, is important for um, virus fitness. But when we, there, there are ways to decrease this variance and then um, fitness drops. But to me, it's not entirely clear yet whether this is a direct effect whether or not the quasi-species structure is truly important for virus fitness. It very well may be, but I think more studies are required. Okay. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, viruses, what, uh, I mean, what do you think are going to be some big uh, breakthroughs in terms of our understanding of them? Anything that you're working on in particular, or do you see, do you sense that we're you know, that science is about to make a breakthrough in terms of understanding, or no, it's really just, all right, we're faced with another virus right now, and we're going to find a vaccine for it, and that's it. No, you see, things certainly cannot be viewed in this narrow sense. There are millions, actually, millions of uh, distinct viruses on Earth. Virus, millions of virus species, if you will. Uh, it's, it's the tiniest minority of these, uh, that are pathogenic for humans, um, and, and, the, and the very small minority that are pathogenic for any animals at all. Most of them uh, actually infect unicellular life forms, uh, uh, which does not make them less interesting or important, um, apart from parochial consideration. So, um, if you want to, if you want to claim that we understand the world of viruses, we need to have a picture of that diversity of viruses on Earth. And as a perspective, it's important um, uh, to, uh, to realize that the huge majority of viruses that are out there um, cannot be uh, uh, grown in the laboratory, or at least at this time. Uh, for most of them, we don't even know the host. Uh, so we don't know how to, what, what host we need to cultivate in the lab in order to grow the viruses. So the only, at this time at least again, uh, the only way uh, uh, to tap into that diversity is uh, metagenomics. Uh, that is um, sequencing of nucleic acid DNA and or RNA from certain fractions of biological material from different habitats, perhaps from virus-enriched fractions, um, uh, without um, initial growing in the lab, so that you can um, assess 
diversity directly and more or less objectively. Uh, and I would submit uh, uh, that in the last few years, metagenomics has uh, transformed uh, and dramatically advanced our knowledge of the um, diversity uh, um, of uh, microbes and viruses on Earth. And these findings now are starting to allow us to, so to speak, uh, chart the structure of the virus and microbial universes. We now um, start, I think, to see uh, the um, combined, of course, with all the methods of comparative genomics about which we spoke a little bit, advances of metagenomics uh, allow us now uh, to start understanding the relationship between uh, different parts of the world of viruses and, and microbes. So I think it's an, really an ongoing, rather quiet, but very fundamental uh, uh, re-evolution in our understanding of, of the biosphere. Okay. And then um, I know we're just about out of time. Last question. With all the uh, the omics that are out now, you know, proteomics, genomics, et cetera, all these ways of uh, slicing and dicing, um, do you think that we're going to have a, a lexicon, you know, for a given sequence of of base pairs and RNA or DNA, we'll know, oh, okay, yep, if that's in a genome, it'll do this or that. You think we'll have that uh, that knowledge soon? Well, I don't know if I call, would call that a lexicon, something else, a blueprint. Well, even if it's a language, you know, do you think we'll... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 you, yeah. you think it'll be highly... Yeah, yeah, a language, a language, yeah, a language, a language dictionary, whatever. So, basically, basically, I would say yes. And much of it already, we don't have to fantasize too much. Uh, much of that already exists. We can rather well predict the capacities of a given virus or a given cell, or even a given multicellular organisms from the genome. Uh, the, um, uh, there is still quite a way to go. Um, we have to substantially improve the methods to model uh, the processes that uh, occur in organisms uh, based on the repertoire of genes and on, gene, on the sequences of these genes themselves. Uh, but a rough understanding exists already today. Will that understanding be perfect ever? No, I don't think so. Simply because uh, correspondence between uh, the genome sequence and the phenotype is never strictly precise. Uh, uh, there are always, you know, environmental changes, fluctuations, all sorts of noises uh, that affect the phenotypic manifestation of uh, uh, any genome. So, to a very large extent, such blueprints are feasible, uh, but a degree of stochasticity, a degree of uncertainty will remain. Okay. Well, very good. Eugene, it's been a really great call. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep tabs on you? The, um, uh, you know, the, the very good way to find out about uh, our work uh, is to look for, for the publications on Google Scholar or PubMed databases. There are many. Um, one might want to look at my web page at the NCBI, National Center for Biotechnology Information, which contains references. One might want to look into um, my book called The Logic of Chance on the Nature of Origin of Biological Evolution, but that's already almost a decade old. Perhaps mm. 
Perhaps an update is, is due. It needs to evolve into a new form, right? For next year. Say it again, please. I was joking. I said it needs to evolve into your next book coming soon. Yes, yes, it does. It does. Correct. It's not a joke. It does. Texts evolve just as life works. So there are many ways to familiarize the interested reader with our work. It's, it's much exposed, I should say. Okay, well, well, very good. Eugene, thanks for coming. I really appreciate you being oh, here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure to visit. And I look forward to hear the podcast. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.